Hey friends, it's Kevin Morris, and welcome to another episode on the Better Bible Reading Podcast. Today's episode is a sermon that I recently preached at my church, and the reason I preached that sermon at my church is because I was given the opportunity to begin working my way through a book of the Bible in a series of sermons, and that book is the Old Testament narrative known as the Book of Ruth. These sermons are going to take place roughly once a month, but as I preach them, I want to make sure that I post them on the podcast feed uh, for you to be able to listen. And if you have any comments or questions, or you want to just share the way that you've been interacting with this book as you uh, work your way through it with me, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Just shoot me an email, betterbiblereading at gmail.com. I will be glad to hear from you. And I also just want to make a shout out to my patrons on Patreon.com because their continued support is what makes you being able to listen to this and watch the YouTube channel. Uh, That's what makes all that possible. So if and only if you have found yourself benefiting from all the things that I do and you have been wondering what is a way that you can support me, you can go and check out patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash better Bible reading. All right, well, I'll leave it at that, and hopefully you enjoy this sermon. Let us now pay careful attention to the word of God. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Please be seated. In the book, Pilgrim's Progress, as Christian is on his way to the celestial city, he's told to stop and have a conversation with the man called the interpreter. And this meeting is important because the interpreter is going to show Christian a series of visions, and these visions are meant to convey various warnings that he needs to pay careful attention to as he's on his way to the celestial city so that he'll stay on the straight and narrow path. Well, there's a variety of visions that are shown to Christian, uh, but one of the more important ones happens when Christian is presented a man in an iron cage. This man, as Christian looks at the man, is said to be so burdened, so cast down, that his physical appearance was conveying the very strong possibility that his heart was literally about to break. And Christian looks at this man and says, is there no hope? The man's response, 
No hope. None at all. Hope. We think about hope, what comes to mind? Of course, we know the trifecta of faith, hope, and love. But what is hope? How would you describe hope? Maybe you're the kind of person that describes hope as the idea of a glass half full, an optimistic approach to the human life. Maybe you think about hope as the idea of what you wish to happen, what you hope takes place in the course of your life, what you hope doesn't happen or what you hope does happen. Well, we have a variety of different definitions that we could give to hope. But I would say that it is probably easier for us to describe the absence of hope than it is to pin down a definitive explanation of what it is. You might have a variety of different ways that you try to describe hope. But if I asked you, what is a hopeless situation? What has been a hopeless situation in your own life? I would imagine you have much more vivid Um, reminders of what it was like in this situation or maybe even your current situation where you feel as if there is no hope. We understand what it is when we don't have it, in other words. And in a manner of speaking, we could say that as we set our gaze on the opening of the book of Ruth, that's exactly what we see. We see a rather morbid paragraph. We see a rather hopeless paragraph situation. And that's what I want us to maybe spend some time this morning to pay careful attention to. Uh, The problem with a book like Ruth, a book that is so short, a book where uh, you have all of these uh, kind of video or TV series spinoffs of the book, we, we have kind of the highlights of what we might think about it. We often know because we're not left in the suspense that the book hasn't been finished uh, being written yet, like a, like a TV series where you're waiting to see what the next episode is going to have. Well, we have the entire book, and chances are most of you in here have already read the book before. You understand the high points. You understand the book named Ruth has Ruth in the book, and eventually we're getting to that line of David. Uh, we're getting to even the line of Jesus Christ himself. We have that kind of redemptive arc in the book, And so we already know what the end of the story looks like. And because of that, we often gloss over the introduction of the book. Not only because we know what's going to take place, but because we know what's going to take place all the way at the end of human history uh, as we uh, look to the victorious ruling and reigning Jesus Christ. But we need to slow down. We need to backtrack a little bit and examine the hopeless situation Uh, that opens up the book of Ruth. And as we do that, we'll be able to wrestle with the question, what does covenant unfaithfulness produce for the people of God? What does covenant unfaithfulness produce for the people of God? We'll see the answer to that question, and we'll be able to see that in the way that these opening five verses present the story to us. This is a narrative passage. This is somewhat of a narrative genre uh, in the Bible. And so you're going to have to pay special attention to characters, to place, and all that kind of thing, uh, because it's going to help set the stage to appreciate the content in the book. And it seems like the author in these opening five chapters of the book of Ruth 
or these opening five verses rather, are going to tell us uh, the who, what, when, where, but oftentimes not the how or the why, which is often what we really want to know. And so we're going to have to do a little bit of digging. We're going to have to do a little bit of evaluation uh, to really uh, understand what's taking place here. But let us just basically work our way through uh, these first five verses, paying careful attention to the way the text answers when, what, who, and where in that order. So the verse, verse one starts out in this way. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. There's really the answer uh, to all of those questions. If you want to know when this took place, it was when the judges ruled. If you want to know what was taking place, well, there was a famine in the land. If you want to know who, it's the man and his nuclear family, his wife and his two sons. And if you want to know where, uh, this is a group of people from from Bethlehem and Judah, and they're making their way to the country of Moab. But It's not that simple as simply answering those questions and moving on. You know, when we come off of the Christmas season, one of the things uh, that maybe it gives you great joy or maybe it gives you utter despair uh, that it's time to take down the Christmas lights uh, from outside of your house. Uh, We are a very modest family, so we don't have too much things uh, to take down. But what we do like to do during the Christmas season is to ride around the neighborhood and take a look at all of the uh, kind of glorious, sometimes gaudy uh, Christmas decorations that these uh, various families have invested hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars into for some reason. I don't know why. And my wife and I really enjoy doing this. uh, But for those of you who have children, you understand that there is a a ticking clock happening as you're making your way from neighborhood to neighborhood. And sometimes it is a slow burn, and other times you got to make a quick 180 because the time to look at Christmas lights is over, and it's time to go back home as quickly as possible. Well, the problem is when you're not using a GPS and you're just making your way in these various neighborhoods you've never been into, uh, you turn onto the street, you got to leave, you got to get home, and suddenly you're met with the sign, no outlet or dead end. And you got to figure out really quick whose driveway am I going to pull in to make a quick turnaround and get home as fast as possible. Well, that's somewhat what we have here in the book of Ruth. I would presume most of you, when you think about the book of Ruth, you have a generally optimistic or a joyful idea of the book of Ruth. It's a beautiful story. Maybe it's even described as a love story in some regard. But the opening phrase is our no outlet, dead end warning. If you've made your way through uh, Genesis and you just kept on going through the end of the book of Judges, you probably, when you got to the end of the book of Judges, you groan, you sigh, you try to figure out what in the world just happened because it is a very uh, dark book, it is a dark era in the history of Israel. And you're like, okay, now I can get a breather because now I've entered into the more palatable book of Ruth. Well, we have the no outlet warning as soon as we start reading because we're told we have not left the era of the time of the judges. We're still there. We haven't found the escape route. Things are still dangerous. And you can think as you read that opening phrase, maybe your heart sinks 
if you're the original audience. Maybe you're waiting to see what is the traumatic instance that's going to happen. What is the unfaithful story that's going to be told to us of how God's people caved yet again? What kind of judge are we going to learn about that seems like they got it all together and suddenly uh, they fall off the cliff? What's going to happen? And so we're automatically met with this uh, suspense, if you will, to find out what's going to happen in this book. But we're told when the judges ruled, it is not a threat of a particular military. It's not a threat of a certain group or a certain nation that's coming to oppress God's people. This time, it's a localized threat. It's a famine, but a famine in the land, a famine in the land. Now, those two don't go together. Uh, God's people have entered the land that's supposed to be a land that's flowing with milk and honey, which is hardly a way to describe a famine. It is a place where you would say it's the polar opposite of a famine. And yet here they are on their own home turf, turf, uh, presumably with home field advantage, and yet they still find themselves with a famine. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now we could say that famine and the land of promise go together in about the same way that Bethlehem goes with Moab. Or to maybe put it in a more succinct way, Bethlehem and Moab go together the same way that God and idolatry go together. The two don't mix. It would be completely ridiculous to think of a group of people from Bethlehem making their way into Moab. Moab was where um, Moses died outside of the land. Uh, It was very much described to us as on the precipice of the land of promise, but not quite there yet, Uh, a short of the promised land. And here you have uh, this family from Bethlehem and Judah making their way to Moab, which seems like a complete uh, crazy thing for them to do. We could even say that when we read Bethlehem and Judah, maybe you have your mind fixed on something awesome is about to happen. After all, Bethlehem is where our Lord was born. Judah is the tribe that he comes from. We're thinking maybe about King David and Solomon. Think of the tribe of, of Judah. This is, this is the safe bet uh, when it comes to God's people. But that's getting ahead of the story because we don't have those categories until after uh, the book of Ruth has already taken place. In fact, if you've just read the book of Judges, when you read the phrase Bethlehem and Judah, your heart should sink even more because the two times in the book of Judges that Bethlehem and Judah are mentioned, it's first with an unfaithful uh, priest. He's sojourning from Bethlehem in Judah, and he eventually becomes this kind of itinerant priest for hire, and everybody wants to grab him up, and he's helping this guy with his own personal shrine. There's all kinds of idolatry and unfaithfulness happening, and that's where this man comes from. And so you're like, oh, no, is this going to be another uh, storyline about uh, shameful idolatry? Well, then you get to the second instance of Bethlehem in Judah that's mentioned in the book of Judges, and it's the unfaithful concubine who eventually goes to Gibeah, and you have essentially a Sodom 2.0. It's a very morbid story in the book of Judges. It happens at the tail end that eventually enters into civil war among the Israelites. 
And so you get to this phrase, Bethlehem and Judah, in the opening paragraph of, of Ruth, and you're like, I don't know if I can take another Bethlehem and Judah storyline here. The last two were horrible. And so this is not necessarily um, a clue that something great is about to happen. It's more so a clue that something tragic is about to happen. And of course, we've already read all five verses, so we understand that something does, in fact, happen that is tragic. Well, Moab wasn't on the list of places to sojourn to. This is not where you would want to go. This is entering into an idolatrous town. This is uh, outside the promised land. And yet, this is where this man decides to go. Now, it's interesting when we think about the irony here uh, that Bethlehem really means house of bread. That's the meaning of the word. So it's ironic that this family that resides from the house of bread, they got to go look elsewhere for bread. They're in the midst of a famine. Uh, There's a lot of irony that happens in the the names and the people uh, throughout this book. And this is one of them, that you wouldn't think the people of Israel would journey into Moab, but here they are facing a famine. Uh, They're on the brink of starvation, and they got to figure out what to do. Well, Elimelech is the name of the man. We're given his name in verse 2. And here's another irony, is that this man, his name translates to something like God is king. Or maybe more personally, my God is king. Now, what is a man named my God is king doing going outside the territory of his king? Well, if you backtrack with me, to the closing verse of the book of Judges, here's a succinct way that we can understand what does it mean to live in the days when the judges ruled. Here's our answer in the very last verse of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So here's the man called my God is king living during a time when Israel said, We have no king. Everyone is his own king. Sounds remarkably like the days in which we live. Uh, Everyone is an autonomous human being. We answer to nobody. Uh, If we don't like you, we'll have nothing more to do with you. Your opinion doesn't matter. I do whatever I want. And if the law is against me, I'll just try to find a way to change the law to suit my own interest. Or I'll break it, and who cares? It's a very autonomous culture in which we live, and it was the same way during the days of the judges. So if you're thinking, this man, maybe he was named this uh, simply because it was a common name, it was, a, it was the kind of Israelite name you would expect to have, or maybe he was named this because his parents had a remarkable faith. His parents understood who the Lord God was, and here he is, one generation removed, living in polar opposite to what his name conveys. In any case, you have everybody doing what they think works, uh, a very pragmatic time. And that is exactly the idea here. It doesn't matter that Moab is off limits. It doesn't matter that it's outside the territory that God's people were promised. That's where the food is, presumably, so that's where they're going to go. And the ends justify the means in that way. It's easy to write them off for journeying some 50 miles or so to Moab, depending on exactly where in Moab they were uh, eventually landing. But the idea communicated here is that it was supposed to be a sojourn. 
It was a temporary arrangement. It was trying to work around the immediate conflict that they were met with, the famine, the the threat of starvation. It was only supposed to be a quick fix that was going to give way to a better solution. That's what's communicated to us in the idea that they're sojourning to Moab uh, for a brief stint to get back on their feet. And it's easy to kind of uh, throw stones at them to say, like, why in the world would they do something like this? Um, Not to excuse their actions, but in the same way, we don't know what it's like to actually face a famine. I think back during the days of all of the COVID shutdowns and everything happening, there was no talk about America being on the brink of starvation. There was talk that we were going to run out of toilet paper. Toilet paper presupposes we're going to have food to eat, if you get the idea. And even if the grocery stores start having shortages, there's more grocery stores, there's gas stations, there's Bucky's. You can go 24-7, whatever you need. There's no threat of starving to death. But put yourself in their shoes. No Bucky's, no refrigerators, no freezers, no grocery stores, no online pickup, nothing. When the food is gone, the food is gone. Their supplies running short. They're on the brink of starvation. Drastic times call for drastic measures, come what may. That's the idea behind a sojourn to Moab. Should they have done it? No. But they're doing it, and we see what happens in the aftermath. The man's name is Elimelech. The name of his wife is Naomi, which means something like pleasantness, which again is a sense of irony. There's nothing pleasant about living in the midst of a famine. There's nothing pleasant about what's about to happen either. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Now, there is debate as to what these names mean, because this is the only time we find these two names in the Bible. So there's all kinds of argumentation happening if you read commentaries as to where the origin of these names are. But if these names do have a Hebrew root to them, the names mean something like weak and exhausted or weak and uh, spent entirely. And for the sons, their names serve not necessarily as an irony, but as kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, because that is exactly the kind of end that they meet. Malon and Kilon. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, if you look at different ways that the word Ephrath is used, it's a synonym for Bethlehem. So it seems kind of strange uh, to say the same thing twice. Uh, Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. You'll find that in the book of Genesis. But that is the name of Bethlehem before it became properly named Bethlehem. So that is, in some ways, maybe hinting at the fact uh, that these uh, Bethlehemites were people of Bethlehem in name, but they were people of Canaan in heart. Uh, These were Ephrathites in that sense. That's uh, maybe a little bit of conjecture. Uh, The other possibility is that the fact that they are specifically Ephrathites has to do with this lineage that traces all the way back to the Israelite founding of Bethlehem. So this would be something like saying, uh, this is the, the Rockefeller family. 
these are, uh, this is an aristocracy. Uh, these are uh, the famous people. What in the world is such a family lineage doing uh, hunting around for bread? Uh, so it's somewhat of an insult. It's somewhat of showing uh, that these people should not be in such a situation. And yet here they find themselves. And matters get worse because now they went into the country of Moab and notice that the sojourn, the temporary travel, the temporary stay now becomes a little bit more permanent. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Verse three, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi died and she was left with her two sons. Now, here's where we're wanting desperately more details. I mentioned that we're told who, what, when, and where, but we're not told how and why. And you want to know, how did he die? Why did he die? There's all kinds of speculation out there, but the fact of the matter is we don't know. It could be that he died because famine was a curse that God threatened Israel with for covenant disobedience, for covenant unfaithfulness. This is what's going to happen to you if you turn your back on me and start serving other gods. Maybe Elimelech was trying to remain faithful. Maybe he finds himself going to Moab. He's trying to keep the faith. He knows he shouldn't be there, but he's trying to do the best he can. He has the burden of caring for his wife and his two sons. Uh, But whatever it is that happens ends up being too much for him. Maybe he starves to death. Maybe there's an accident. We don't know. But in a manner of speaking, uh, this is a faithful man that meets a tragic end. Possible. Also possible that he meets the exact end that you would imagine for somebody who not only turns his heart against the Lord in the promised land, but feels more at home outside the promised land where idolatry is running rampant. A man who's not living up to his name at all, who makes a poor decision taking his family where he shouldn't take him, take them, and the Lord takes his life. The problem is both of these are possible, and we're not told how and why. We have to keep reading. We have to keep working through the text. Elimelech dies, and she, Naomi, was left with her two sons. Now imagine just for a minute, what it would look like during these days to suddenly not have the husband. Now, we know in just a verse or two, the sons are going to get married, but we don't know how old they are here. We don't know what the time frame is from the time they get to Moab to the time where the sons eventually marry. So maybe they're teenagers. We don't know. But suddenly you have foreign people, Naomi and her two sons, in a foreign land, And suddenly you find yourself deeply threatened. Are there men around Moab that are going to try to take advantage of Naomi? Uh, What is it going to look like for her to care for her children if they're not old enough to help care for things themselves? We don't know. There's all kinds of questions like this that we have to wrestle with, but eventually we don't know. But we can imagine things go from the prospect of just dealing with a famine uh, that now you have the head of the household gone. And what do you do? Now, could it be that Elimelech is taking his family against their wishes? We don't read of anything speaking about other people from Bethlehem and Judah joining with them. Uh, We don't know what their extended family thought about their decision. 
but presumably they go this place all by themselves, and maybe this is a poor decision on the part of the husband. Maybe they don't want to go, and he's just tugging them along because he has the authority, and now is as great a chance as ever, as he's, as he's dead, uh, to kind of you know, wipe away the losses that you've made. You made a poor decision. You came here to Moab. Now it's time to go back home. Now it's time to go back to Bethlehem, surround ourselves with family, maybe just see, will the Lord be gracious to us and just go back to where we belong? The exact opposite happens. It starts out as a sojourn, a temporary situation. It moves on to remaining there while Elimelech is alive. And now that he's dead, we don't see a 180 back to Bethlehem. Instead, what we see is two marriages. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Any possibility of going back to Bethlehem, going back to the promised land, is getting smaller and smaller and smaller with each decision that's made. Not to mention the fact that Naomi started out as the wife of a nuclear family of Israelites, and now she finds her sons marrying Moabite women, and she is now presumably about to be the mother-in-law to Moabite children. That's what you expect to happen. The sons marry. They're now into a family. There's uh, kind of two, foot buried, two feet buried deep down into the Moabite soil. This is where we're going to build our family. This is our new dynasty here in Moab. And things are looking not so great for Naomi. This is not, maybe it's a celebratory occasion. Uh, maybe there's some good news. Maybe the idea is that these women um, are godly women. Uh, but the idea is that they're in Moab, and later on in the book, we're going to learn that they had gods to turn back and go to and serve again. So presumably, these sons don't make great marital decisions, even though one of the names of the women is the name of the book, Ruth. They took Orpah and Ruth as their wives. They lived there about 10 years. And then verse 5, the worst happens. And both Malon and Kilion died, <clears throat> so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Again, how did they die and why did they die? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Ten years is a long time to be married and not have any children. Is this because they were withholding uh, the idea of offspring to these women and the Lord punished them for it? Maybe there's an example of that in the book of Genesis. It's a possibility, but we don't know that. Could they not have children? We don't know that. There's all kinds of questions that we could ask, and we want more details, but the fact of the matter is these two sons die, and now it is the absolute worst scenario possible because Ruth, who started as the wife of Elimelech, the mother of Malon and Kilion, now you have three widows, and that's it. We've been introduced six characters in the first five verses, and three of them are gone. It's a 50% mortality rate here of everybody that we've met. It's a tragic beginning to a story. What do you do now that you have three widows? If there was any possibility of protection and help 
supporting and, and making ends meet in the way of actually cultivating your bread and staying alive and not dying of a famine. If there's any possibility of that, that has now dropped drastically because now you have three widows and that's it. No men to help, no men to protect. It is a terrible circumstance. Now, of course, the name of the book is Ruth. And we want to know what she's thinking. What is Ruth's reaction to this? After all, we have three widows here, uh, properly speaking. Uh, What is their reaction? But the fact of the matter is, the opening paragraph of Ruth doesn't want us to focus on Ruth. Because at least so far, Ruth isn't even the main character, even though the book is named Ruth. Now, you could say later on, the book of Ruth is about Ruth. But this opening paragraph is interesting because when we read that last phrase, we're told who the main character is, at least so far. And that is not Ruth, it is Naomi. This book is interesting in so many ways, but one of the ways that it's interesting is because we're meant to follow the storyline of Naomi from the beginning to the end. Not only is the book a redemptive arc, if you will, for Ruth, but it is also for Naomi. And we have to feel the burden and the weight of this situation. Do you see the progression that takes place here? What started out as a sojourn, a temporary trip, becomes more permanent. They remain there. And then finally, after the father dies, they live there for 10 years. Uh, How is a woman like Naomi and these two widows, how is she going to find any way back home now? But in the same way, we're meant to feel the tragic loss experienced by Naomi. She starts out described to us as the wife of Elimelech. In verse number three, Even though Elimelech dies, she was left with her two sons. She's described to us as a mother. And now finally in verse 5, you can feel the weight of her loss. You can feel the emptiness of her life because she's described to us simply as the woman. No longer having a living husband, no longer having living children, just the woman who at first was left with her sons, now is left without her two sons and her husband. The Hebrew is actually more um, pointed in the way that it reads in verse 5, because verse 5 would read something like this. um, Surprisingly or unbelievably, her two sons died also. It's this shock, uh, this, this factor of thinking about not only has she lost her husband, but now uh, to add insult to injury or to pour salt on an open wound, we might say it, she now has lost her two sons as well. Well, this is a morbid story in many ways. You might be asking, where is the good news here? This is a very sad and tragic tale. Why did you decide to just deal with verses one through five here? After all, we're here in the aftermath of Jesus Christ's uh, resurrection and ascension. We, we have a living Savior. Why are we beating down on this morbid story without going forward? 
Well, it's because to appreciate the good news, we have to feel the weight of the bad news. You can't appreciate what happens later on in the story of the book of Ruth if you don't feel the weight of this loss. You might say this way. You can't appreciate hope unless you feel the weight of the absolute hopeless situation that Naomi now finds herself in. You, you got to wrestle with that. You got to feel the weight of that because the text wants us to feel the weight of that. And this is inspired by the Lord. We have to feel what the burden is here. In some ways, we could say that this text presents to us a warning of wayward believers who have decided, I'm going to hedge my bets elsewhere, outside the people of God. I'm not going to worry about going to church. I'm not going to worry about faithful attendance. I'm going to chase all of the things that are outside there somewhere and see how it goes with me. After all, remember, this is a very pragmatic situation. You just, you just do it because this is the next step that makes sense. You're just fighting for survival, plain and clear. This is how people often default in our own world, professing Christians that at one time surrounded themselves within the covenant community of God's people, understood what it meant to bear the burden with one another, understood what it meant to have support, to have spiritual direction alongside each other, to be under the preached word of God. And suddenly somewhere, things look a little shaky and they say, I'm gonna see if it works better out there. Now, the warning here is not, if you do that, your husband and children will die. The warning is, there's no hope out there. That is what the fruit of this whole situation is. The big idea of what fruit is produced by covenant disobedience or covenant unfaithfulness by God's people is not your spouse will die or your children will die or you'll starve to death. The fruit that is bore from covenant disobedience and unfaithfulness is hopelessness. Faith, hope, and love, these three go together. And where do they go together? Well, interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul speaks in that passage about fellowship and worship among God's people. What we should feel here is not simply the fact that Naomi has lost her husband and her children, but she is absolutely outside the covenant community of God's people, so there is no spiritual direction. There's no clarity, there's no support, there's nothing, including hope. There's no hope here at all. And that's the burden of the situation. There's a warning there for us. We should remember that we don't come to church so bad things won't happen to us. We live in a fallen world. Just as likely for something like this to happen to us if we're faithful attenders at church as opposed to going about our merry way. But the difference is the Lord is gracious to us in this context. He provides clarity and support and direction. And we're safeguarded because his word is preached among his people. That's the difference. There's also the reminder that in the pursuits of the world, this first paragraph essentially reads right out of the book of Ecclesiastes. All is vanity so far. People live, people die. The next generation, they live, they die. 
The pattern continues. All is vanity. And that's what life looks like outside of the Lord. Notice that God isn't even mentioned yet. We could say that things are even worse than they are in a book like Judges because the Lord is mentioned in the opening verse. But here there's no mention of him anywhere except for somebody's name that doesn't live up to the name at all because he lives as if there is no king named God. The silver lining is not found in verses 1 through 5, but it would be wrong to suggest that there is no silver lining at all. You might say, where is the hope? The hope isn't in verses 1 through 5. The hope is found in the hopelessness of the situation in verses 1 through 5 as a careful reminder that hope comes from the Lord himself. When we are at rock bottom, when we are dealing with tragedy, when we are dealing with loss, when we are dealing with a sense of no direction whatsoever, the idea is not to look deeper and deeper and deeper inside of yourself and see if you can pull out some kind of hope. The idea is to say there is no hope in my intellect. There is no hope in my situation. All of it's vanity. The hope comes from looking beyond myself. That's exactly what we see in verse 6. This is not part of the sermon text, but I would be wrong to not read. Verse 6, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. No reason for the Lord to do this in terms of performance. If it's up to how faithful the people are, if it's up to how well they have things together, if it's up to their track record, the Lord shouldn't move at all because there's no deserving of any intervention. They've turned their backs on the Lord entirely. But when we are faithless, the Lord remains faithful. That's the good news. That's the reason the book keeps going because God does something. If he didn't do anything, it would end in verse five and we would have no hope. We'd have no instruction. We would just say, this is how it is. But friends, we felt this in our own spiritual lives. Think of Ephesians 2. You were dead. I was dead outside of Christ. No hope within. No hope if I look around here. No hope at all. We were dead. But Ephesians 2 doesn't end there, does it? It keeps going. But God. That's exactly how Ruth reads. No hope in verses 1 through 5, but God. That's exactly what we see. That's why this story is so impactful, because it is a story from hopelessness to hope. It's a story of redemption. It's a story from bringing a barren family, as it were, on the brink of extinction here, because there's no more husbands. Uh, The family's going to die off entirely unless the Lord intervenes. But it's a story not only of God mending and caring for this specific situation, but remarkably, this is a providential story of how God also brings about not just another judge, but a king of kings and lord of lords 
Jesus Christ himself. So let us remember, we got to feel the weight of the bad news to appreciate the good news. We got to feel sometimes what the absence of hope is like to appreciate when true hope comes from the Lord himself. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you that we would not leave here in hopelessness. I know for many of us in this room, this opening paragraph in some ways can almost read like an autobiography. We do live in a fallen world, and I am not ignorant to think that there is not utter loss that is even presently experienced by some in this room this morning. But Lord, let us be reminded that the story doesn't end here, not only for Naomi and Ruth, but for us, we have the promise and the hope of the gospel. If we find ourselves outside of Christ this morning, we have to feel the weight of our hopelessness. We have to know that there's nothing we can do to simply mitigate the circumstances to a little bit better of an advantage. We must look beyond ourselves. We must come to the end of ourselves and look to Jesus Christ. But Lord, you say that those who do that will not be cast aside. Those who feel the weight of their need for salvation, those who feel the weight of their spiritual deadness, need only look to you and believe. And such hope will not only be wishful thinking, but it will be tangible and real because it is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, taking us from the outskirts of Moab to the city of David. We ask you would be gracious to remind us all of this this morning, and we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.